So today I'm excited and delighted to welcome Alison Cork, who's the founder and CEO of Alison at Home Interiors to the Modern Leaders podcast. Alison, as you would expect, is an interiors expert and serial entrepreneur, having floated her first company on the London Stock Exchange in 1994. She is also an author, TV presenter, and regular contributor in major publications such as the Evening Standard, the Times, and the Daily Telegraph. She's passionate about advocating for women's rights, is amazingly compassionate, and has a fantastic no-nonsense approach to tackling big problems. As always, we'd love to hear feedback from you about the episode and suggestions of who to interview next. Just email us hello at juggle.jobs. That's hello at juggle.jobs. Enjoy the episode. So, Alison, welcome. Hello. Hello, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm very pleased to be here remotely and uh, it's, it's lovely to talk to you. Fantastic. So I'm going to dive straight in. I, I want to understand, when did you decide that the, the entrepreneur journey was, was right for you? Well, the first time I ever displayed any entrepreneurial characteristics was apparently um, when I was only five years old. And I collected up and polished some conkers from the garden of my grandmother, took them to school and managed to persuade my, um, my classmates that they were sort of world-beating conkers and sold them for a penny each in the playground and got into lots and lots of trouble with the teacher um, for having persuaded my classmates to part with their pocket money. Um, but I did sort of realise, even though I didn't articulate it as such at that age, that I seemed to have a skill for selling things and persuading people to buy things from me. So I, I sort of, nothing happened with that uh, until I was at university. And I think that was the defining moment to answer your question. I was really stuck for cash. Um, the reason being that I kept failing my driving test. Um, I was trying to learn to drive whilst I was uh, at college and I couldn't tell my dad that I'd failed four times, but I'd used all my grant money on driving lessons. And so I thought, well, I can't possibly admit that to him. He's going to go crazy. So I better earn some money. So I remembered this ability to sell things. And I, I looked around me in the, in the university city I was in. I spotted what I thought was an opportunity, which is lots of tourists, only come for a day, have to eat something, never know where to eat. And I created um, a rather euphemistically called <laughs> brochure called Good Food in Cambridge, because there really wasn't any, if I'm honest, at that time, um, <laughs> and, and gave it out free uh, to tourists and, uh, and made money from the uh, restaurants advertising in the brochure. Uh, and that was my first taste of making a profit. And so before I'd even left university, I'd kind of realized that working for somebody else and being told what to do, as opposed to being a bit more of a free spirit, um, was almost certainly the way I wanted to go. I absolutely love that. And, and uh, when, when did your dad find out about the, the driving test? Oh, I never told him. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I just, no, 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 some, some things have to, have to be left unsaid. That was one of them. That's brilliant. And you touched on, you know, one of the really important core skills for, for being an entrepreneur, which is, selling and persuading people and bringing them on that journey. Um, what else in your character makes you good at what you do? Uh, I think like many 
entrepreneurs, if I could only choose one word, it would probably be curiosity. I, I am constantly curious by nature. If somebody gives me an answer to a question and it's not logical, this is, it probably sort of harks back to the fact that I studied classics, which is a lot of it's about logic. So I think very logically. But if somebody gives me an answer that doesn't convince me, or if I see something that I don't understand, I, I just can't help but pursue it until I've found the answer. And I think that identifying problems and coming up with solutions is probably at the, at the core of most entrepreneurial activity. And it's really interesting, you know, I've obviously spoken to thousands of entrepreneurs over the years, given what I now do in, in trying to help other entrepreneurs. And it's, it's almost always part of their story that there was either a service or a product missing or something they didn't understand or like, and they wanted to change it for themselves and for you know, the community as a whole for the better. And that's where it all begins. Brilliant. I love that. Um, following on from that, you, you do seem to have a phenomenal work ethic and have achieved an awful lot as a consequence. And those I've spoken to who work with you would, would agree that that is very true of you. Um, what fundamentally drives you to work so hard? It's a really interesting question. I, I remember from a very young age, uh, always wanting to succeed, whatever that meant. And so I think I'm naturally quite competitive but I think also um, I've got to give the majority of the credit to my parents and um, my mother uh, was a dinner lady and a doctor's receptionist and my father uh, worked in a brewery and then later in his career was a VAT inspector um, and they were just really hard-working down-to-earth people and I think it's incredibly important you know I always remember that um, saying by Gary Player the uh, the golfer the harder I practice the luckier I get and I've always felt that's incredibly true of me I've, you know, I've never thought I was the the smartest person in the classroom um, but you can make up for an awful lot with hard work because there are some very smart people out there who just don't try very hard. So I always sort of weighed it up and thought, you know what, what I lack in any particular innate ability, I can make up for by just going that extra mile every time. And the other highly underrated quality, I think in life is consistency. Do something and keep doing it until you are really, really good at it and don't give up. Absolutely agree with that, um, 100%. You're a vocal advocate for women's rights, and that was one of the things that you and I connected on uh, from that first phone call that we had, and particularly female entrepreneurship. Can you talk to us about when you decided to become more actively involved, and, and, and why is this so important to you? Yes, I mean, I, um, I went to an all-girls, actually, I'll go back a bit further. I went to an all-girls school uh, and then to an all-girls college at university, which uh, I think there's only one left in Cambridge now, and it's the one that I went to, which is Newnham College. And, and so I, I, would, I definitely wouldn't describe myself as a feminist as such, but I've always been very aware of uh, women's journeys, particularly when it comes to you know, trying to establish yourself in the world of work. And I suppose that maybe sort of subliminally, one of the other reasons that I became an entrepreneur was that 
back in the 70s and 80s when I was growing up and I was a student, there probably was quite a bit more discrimination than there is now. And so maybe subliminally I picked up on all that and thought, you know what, I'll just run my own business because there ain't no glass ceiling when it's your business. Um, and so all of these things were part of my own journey. And having been in, and then sort of fast forwarding to about three or four years ago, having been running my business for almost 30 years, 25, 30 years, I suddenly became aware that there still weren't that many women relative to the number of men leading or owning their own business. So I started to look at curiosity again. I started to look into the stats and um, I noticed, or I found out that only 20% of businesses are owned or run by women. And I thought that's absolutely crazy. So then curiosity again led me to find out why that was and the answers that came back were lack of female role models uh, lack of networking opportunities um, and and just lack of, of access to information and general lack of confidence and I thought well really none of those things are insurmountable if we were to put I mean you can't be it if you can't see it so if we put established female role models in front of aspiring um, entrepreneurs, female entrepreneurs, maybe we could help those women take that first step, you know, helping them to network, to see and listen to the sort of people that they want to become themselves. And so, you know, it's not rocket science, it's a very simple formula. And I set up Make It Your Business, which is to support and encourage women to start their own business. And it's a not-for-profit. Um, and that's exactly what we do. We have events, virtual and face-to-face, -face, all around the country, all around the UK, where we find local establish, established female entrepreneurs and they come and talk about their experiences really honestly. That's the only golden rule of our events. We don't want to hear the pitch perfect story that makes everybody else feel demoralized and inadequate. We want the nuts, the bolts, the good, the bad, the ugly, because we all know, you know, I know that starting a business is really hard and making it a success is harder still. So honesty is the most important gift you could give somebody. Yeah, it's about being it's about being authentic as you as you say otherwise if you hear that everyone's doing a perfect job it's like a it's like an instagram filter and it's just not it's just not real and there's that whiff of inauthenticity that is is going to have the opposite effect and people just turning away from this as a, a career pursuit instead um how is the um how long have you been running make it your business so that's been going for about three and a half years now. We've had about 5,000 women attend our events and we're just going to keep going. I mean, we're forging new partnerships all the time. Um, we've now got a partnership with the British Library that has these absolutely brilliant uh, business and IP centres. So we are creating little sort of pockets of groups around the country off the back of that. We're speaking to banks um, about sort of teaming up with them and uh, offering membership to their female account holders who are starting a business. So there are just endless possibilities and, and you know what we're trying to do every day is reach women um, whom other initiatives don't reach uh, so that you know there's no no woman out there ideally there should be no woman out there who is not starting her business because she feels that there's no support for her there should always be something for them uh, you know somewhere for them to come and somebody for them to talk to what is the what is the consequence of getting that 20% number up? What do you think the outcome to the, the British economy could be? 
Well, it, um, depending upon which, you know, which, which reports you look at, I mean, the number it varies slightly, but it is, it is around um, the sort of 25, 27 billion over a relatively short space of time. So, you know, within the next five years, if we achieve parity, or we would be adding billions, billions to the economy. And again, you know, pre-COVID, that was, uh, for me, an important um, thing to achieve. Post-COVID, it's absolutely essential that we don't leave any stone unturned in terms of regenerating the economy, creating jobs. And, you know, I read an awful lot about big business and how big business is responding to covid but i actually think it's a little bit simpler than that in the sense that the backbone of the economy is these tens or hundreds of thousands of small businesses and by that i mean it could be one person sitting at their kitchen table that, you know that is not to denigrate that that is still a small business and but the sum of those parts could be incredibly meaningful for our economy and i think that if you know if i had to if i could if i could wave my wand and have a one wish it would be that the government would really focus on small and independent businesses because i do believe that that is going to be the route to regenerating economic prosperity yeah i completely agree um, going back to the the 20 percent figure which you started, which prompted you to uh, to found Make It Your Business in the first place, looking at this gender parity issue of um, female founders, it can unlock up to what, 27 billion, you said. But unfortunately, during COVID, it seems like gender's taken a bit of a back seat. And a lot of the recent reports, certainly that I've been reading, suggest that we're going in the wrong direction. Um, how do you How do you intend to combat it yourself and and what do you think the government should do to, to make sure this doesn't happen as you said it could be so economically viable for everyone well it's interesting actually um, i'm not sure i entirely agree that we've taken backward steps and um, from my perspective i think that a lot of the more traditional um sort of gender roles uh, have been challenged during COVID. For a start, um, people might, might have found themselves working from home when they weren't previously. Now, the result of sort of, you know, families being at home together and, and living and working together is possibly, if not probably, that men have taken on some more of the domestic duties than they might otherwise have done. Could be homeschooling, whatever. So, I'm actually quite intrigued to see how this plays out because I'm hoping, and it could just be the eternal entrepreneurial optimist in me, but I, I'm hoping that one of the uh, results of COVID could be that we see an increase in the number of women who have had a time to think, have sort of reassessed their domestic setup or maybe discussed it with their family or partner and thought, actually, you know what? Now's the time that I am going to start that business because things have changed. And, you know, necessity is the mother of invention. And I think sometimes as, as cruel and hard a, a sort of shake up as it was, if it has shaken some of us out of our very traditional ways of thinking, and I, you know, I'd put my hand up and say I was one of them in terms of how I used to run my business, then I think that's a good thing. And, and I think that could be really interesting. You've, um, we talked a little bit offline before, um, before this recording about 
um, your learning around remote working and how to set up your business. Can you talk us through the journey that you've been on uh, with regards to this, how the office should be structured? Because as I understand it, Alison at home is, is now largely remote. Is that right? Yes, it is. So we used to, I, I for many years, followed a very traditional pattern for no reason other than i thought that's how you ran a business <laughs> you know you you take an office uh, the, you know, or you, you you work from home for the for the years when you're setting up and, and getting the, the thing viable the minute you can you establish an office infrastructure you take on those overheads uh, you have employees who come to work they come to work at a certain time they leave at a certain time and i'm i'm half german i think that might be why i'm programmed to be on time but um you know i, I sort of that was always very important for me me. it was a matter of professional you know, professionalism and discipline that people should be there on time and leave on time and etc etc and um pre-covid actually it was last year uh, sort of middle of last year onwards i suddenly started to just think more deeply about how and why i was running my business in this way and, and partly i think it was a, as a result of looking at the numbers looking at the cost of those overheads which in london you know can, can be very high um, and partly because I do like to try and challenge myself. And I looked at my particular model, which is an online retail model, and I thought, you know, in truth, your logistics is somewhere else anyway, because you, you can't have a warehouse and um, delivery vans in the centre of London. That doesn't really work. You know, customer service lends itself um, to certain, I mean, certain accents always go down very well with, with um, customers. They're more reassured by certain voices. So that turned out to be something I was running, not from, you know, not from London. And I suddenly thought, well, you know, there isn't any compelling need for me to have this central pod with, you know, all these functions of accountancy and, and customer service and what have you could be carried out elsewhere. So I just completely restructured the way that I approach my business. And, and honestly, I can't think of one major negative. Everything went in, incredibly smoothly. And <laughs> ironically, it's hard to believe now, but we, our, our final day in the office was the last day of February of this year. Oh my goodness. COVID, I know, can you imagine? And then COVID broke. I mean, it was just extraordinary timing. That is, that is incredible. It's such, a, such an interesting journey because I think there'll be a lot of businesses out there now really questioning what happens next. You know, we've had this largest work from home experiment ever and the, the sky didn't fall down. And as a flexible working platform, we're now seeing actually a lot of businesses are embracing the, the positives of what's going to happen. And they're, they're realizing that we need to adapt to this new normal and there's, there's lots of great possibilities that come with that. How do you square that then with the government's response, which at the moment, I, I think the slogan they've used is back to back to work, um, which somewhat implies that people haven't been working from home. Uh, so I think they <laughs> might need some work. Um, <laughs> it's really bad. Um, well, it, it's, you know, it's really interesting what you're saying. And in fact, I was writing an art. I felt compelled to sit down and write an article about this very subject this morning. And But the, the subject of my article was London. And so I think that whilst I'm all in favour of um, 
sort of throwing a pebble into the pond and seeing if we can do things differently and causing some ripples and, and working from home is, is part of that and can be much more efficient and cost effective for many people. I don't think it's a one size fits all solution. And I think we have to be very mindful that certain sectors of the economy and certain geographical locations um, do require a different approach. And, and as I said, my article was about London and I, I, I don't know if I, um, if I had mentioned it to you in conversation, but in 2018, I stood as the prospective conservative candidate for London Mayor 2020. Uh, which is now um, an election which will take place in May of next year. And uh, I, I got down to the last uh, few candidates, wasn't chosen, otherwise we wouldn't be having this conversation. But, but, it, <laughs> but as, a London, as a Londoner born and bred, it just, you know, I feel very strongly about London. And London has a unique and critically important position as, the, you know, the financial capital of perhaps the world you know it really has a, a very powerful reputation for its its for being a center of finance and the city of london which i go to frequently is has been devastated by covid yeah, i mean you can yeah. literally see the tumbleweed in the street now you know so in one fell swoop what brexit or you know people like uh, countries like germany or france have never managed to do to us Covid did in one fell swoop, which is empty the city of London of its workers, and and I would say that that is an example where it is incredibly important that those workers do go back to work. You know, they should even, in my opinion, even be designated as essential workers who have to go back to their workplace because otherwise we risk losing not just jobs but our position as a financial sort of behemoth of the world and that could be utterly devastating for us as a country we we simply cannot afford for that to happen that's really interesting i never thought of it with that from that angle um i will i'm also thinking about this topic quite deeply as well because i i have friends who are running businesses which are largely sales-led organizations with individuals who are mainly in their 20s and you know i remember that that was part of your social as well as business culture Right. It, it, and working from home is a bit miserable for a lot of people in their 20s. Um, so I can I can definitely see the, the logic in getting those businesses back for, for all sorts of reasons. Um, I did tweet out, I think, late last week um, that I thought that the whole position was crazy. And I got some really interesting responses back. And, and one of the general themes was um, that people were fearful that jobs will go abroad as a consequence. What's your view on this? Is it, is it a valid fear or is this just an inevitable change? I'd be interested to get your thoughts. In terms of will jobs go abroad, do you mean? Yeah, if we, if we largely shift to a more of a remote working society and, and ditch the office, which in, in my sector, in, in technology and software, um, particularly venture-backed companies, a, a lot of them are either downsizing the office or getting rid of them altogether. We can do all of our work remotely. Um, I, I guess, what do you think the consequence of that is to jobs in, in Britain? Um, I don't necessarily think that lots of jobs will go abroad. You know, as somebody who, who's run several businesses, um, there's always this, uh, 
you know, one can make sort of fairly flippant comments about, oh, well, you know, it'll be cheaper and, and easier and this, that and the other. And with, and with technology, you know, we can, we can connect and there's no reason why we shouldn't employ people in, in different countries. And to some extent you can, um, but I don't think it's ever as easy as people imagine. It's much harder to um, employ or control in the sense of get get people to do exactly what you want them to do when they are at that extra arm's length um, and and also I think you know there's a slight misnomer of it always being cheaper it depends what you mean by cheap you know a lot of uh, a lot of um, sort of em employment which appears to be cheaper on the surface of it isn't when you factor in the extra effort in managing people at that distance and the unforeseen difficulties and the cost of replacing them when some or, or the cost of of putting right any any damage that's done as a result of them not being so much under your control so there are lots of quite sort of intangible elements involved in employing people abroad and and I wouldn't say it's quite as straightforward as that and I wouldn't fear it as much and I think that also you know I'm an employer and I want to employ people in this country first and foremost I want people who are just going to do a really straightforward honest day's work for which I am more than happy to pay the going rate um, and that's that's my priority is to get good people to do the job well that's it first and foremost and i and i believe i can find those people in this uh, in this country fantastic i completely agree um we're running uh we're coming to the end and we have covered so much ground on that's not possible we couldn't the end founder <laughs> journey covid remote working but i do want to go back to uh, a topic which I think is close to your heart and something you, you alluded to earlier, which is, well, it's close to both of our hearts. It's, it's libraries, local libraries. Um, ah, yes. It's a, a very, um, it's where I spent a lot of my time in my youth. That was very cool. Um, and I'm, I've been very sad to see that libraries are dwindling out in recent years due to funding pressures. Um, but you've put together an initiative which not only revives them, but also reinvents them, possibly making them much more resilient now. Can you talk to us about this in a bit more detail? Ah, yes, this is this is very close to my heart. And this all ties in with with the whole question of entrepreneurship and the importance of not just uh, encouraging it, but championing it in this country going forward. So um, I was told by a friend about the British Library. This is in the Euston Road in London, the British Library Business and IP Centre. And I hadn't heard about it before. And again, being curious, I thought, oh, that's interesting. Apparently it's a free service. I'll go along and see what it's all about. And I was absolutely astonished to find this huge resource of um, marketing reports, you know, Mintel, these reports that one has to pay hundreds, if not thousands to purchase or access elsewhere. All of this marketing information one-on-one -on -one mentoring, um, IP advice, intellectual property advice, you know, trademarking advice, all of this was free at the British Library. And I thought it was going to be a catch. And they said, no, this is a business and IP centre to encourage entrepreneurs. Um, all you have to do is sign up as a, as a library member and you can access all of this. And I thought, this is extraordinary. Why don't more people know about this? And then this developed into a friendship with the, the team that run the business and IP centre and into a series of conversations. And I'm cutting a pretty long story short here. But out of all this came 
an idea that we could and should replicate that business center all around the country because believe it or not there are 3,000 libraries in England alone as you and I both know they are often underutilized or closing down or whatever and I suddenly thought we could we could conceivably convert a bit of every single library in England in the UK eventually into a local business and IP center we could reach the parts that other initiatives have never managed to reach you know we talk about leveling up we talk about getting opportunity into areas where geographically opportunity hasn't existed this would be a way to do that and you know libraries as we know they're buildings that are often in the heart of the community they're a trusted brand people understand what libraries stand for they're the perfect vehicle to help and support the local community start a business there you know and i just it just came from that discussion and so then of course the only question was money so i spent a couple of years working with the team lobbying my little heart out and to my complete delight uh, in the budget which again was just pre-covid i think it was march the 12th from memory we got 13 million to start building uh, business and IP centers in libraries all around the country now that's not going to be enough to do the whole job but it's a fantastic start and we can we can hopefully um, work with the private sector and other entrepreneurs to raise the rest and uh, and make it something that exists all around the UK I absolutely love it and anything that we can do to, to raise awareness and, and help you with such an important endeavor um, we will do and congratulations on getting off the ground as you say amazing timing well, you know, the timing was incredible. Again, you know, it was always a good idea, but it became an essential idea after COVID. But I think the other lesson to be learned from it is, um, you know, just if you've got a particular goal in mind, whatever it is, starting a business, in my case, raising as many millions as I could for libraries, just don't give up. You know, I, I, the one thing I will say was that I was utterly relentless. I, I mean, there was no no person who got away with with not having to listen to my library story <laughs> and, and it was on the basis that i thought to myself if i tell every mp minister government official that i meet um you know about this initiative eventually those dots are going to join up they have to and they did fantastic um i've got one more question before we get to the quick fire round have to ask on your wikipedia page it says that you <laughs> your husband after you dialed a wrong number is that true that, that is completely true <laughs> uh, that was that is i would never fib on my wikipedia page uh, that was uh 22 years ago and um again cutting a long story short i was i wanted to speak to my girlfriend dialed her number a man answered the phone. I said, oh, I'm really sorry, whoever you are, you're not my girlfriend. And, I, um, you know, and, and he said very quickly, wouldn't I do instead? I said, no, not really, because I wanted to have a girly conversation and men are really bad at girly conversations. So I put the phone down and, um, and then I sat there and I thought about it and I thought, well, you know what? He's got a really nice voice. He's clearly very smart. You can hear that in his voice. He's got a good sense of humor. And what have you got to lose, young lady? So I, <laughs> so I dialed the number back. 
I absolutely love that. that so I dialed the number back and, and that led to a date. That led to a third date. And on the third date, he turned to me and said, it's completely obvious to me you're the woman I should spend the rest of my life with. And would you marry me? Oh, how wonderful. And that was it. That's, I think that we're is still the best, here. That is the best story I've heard. That must have been such a great story at the wedding as well. No one can top that. <laughs> I, I mean, pe people, people love the story, I think, because it's a story of, of hope. And, you know, I'm a great believer in, in hope and in the, in the sort of continual uh, miracle and opportunity of, of that life throws up. And, um, you know, it's, it's a lovely, positive story. Um, and at the time, yeah, I mean, we had a lot of uh, newspaper publicity. They even made a, um, an American company even made a short film about it, which I think still exists. It's called Beyond Chance. Um, uh, and it's still being shown on some sort of terrestrial, uh, small sort of terrestrial channels around the world. But uh, no, it was um, just one of those things. And again, you know, I guess I was curious. I wanted to meet the man behind the voice. Wonderful. Love it. Right, I'm going to ask you four questions and I'd like your quick response back to them. Um, okay. The first one is, what do, you, what do you do to relax? What do you do when you're not working? I love walking and I love walking up mountains if possible um, because it's a huge physical effort and whilst you're doing that, you're having to put all your energy into that and your mind is actually working out your problems without you even knowing it. So I get my best ideas at the top of mountains. Brilliant. What is your must-read book for budding entrepreneurs? Oh, um, it's uh, the book by, I'm trying to remember the title now, but it's by Felix Dennis, who sadly has passed away, but he was a wonderful entrepreneur. I think he only wrote one book, so you can't go wrong if you just look up his name, Felix Dennis, the single best book on entrepreneurship I have ever read. It's an absolute must read. And I actually have not read that, so I am going to download that right now. It's fantastic. Um, what's your favorite quote and why? Oh, um, I think it's got to be uh, Madeleine Albright, which is there's a special place in hell for women who don't support other women. It's so true. Yeah. Absolutely. And if you weren't building Alison at home, what would you be doing? I think I'd be working, uh, I don't think, I, I know I'd be working on something to do with the environment. I, I love nature. Um, I love heritage and history and all of those things that are so important to, to, to us, to our culture. And I would want to do something to protect and preserve them. Fantastic. Alison, it's been an absolute pleasure. And we haven't really talked about the business very much at all. We've talked about everything. <laughs> so I'm just going to give the listeners a quick overview. Uh, if you head to alisonathome.com, um, it's a wonderful, wonderful site a beautiful selection of tasteful, practical and beautiful collections of furniture. It's really stunning and, and clearly from an entrepreneur who's passionate and has a depth of knowledge in this area, which is clear to see. So yeah, the, the website is Alison at home. And Alison, it's been an absolute pleasure. I've learned a ton and oh. uh, yeah, can't, can't wait to, to talk to you again very soon. Uh, thanks very much indeed for, for having me on the podcast.